Section 8 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 2, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. Eleanor of Provence, Chapter 2, Part 2. During the captivity of her husband and son, it is asserted that Eleanor of Provence made more than one private visit to England. Ostensibly, she resided in France with her younger children under the kind protection of her sister, Queen Marguerite. Meantime, she had, directly after the disastrous field of Luz, borrowed all the money she could raise on her jewels and credit, and proceeded to muster forces and equip a fleet. Matthew of Westminster does full justice to the energetic efforts of this noble virago, as he styles Queen Eleanor, for the liberation of her husband. She succeeded, he says, in getting together a great army, commanded by so many dukes and earls, as seemed incredible. And those who knew the strength and power of that army affirmed, that if they had once landed in England, they would presently have subdued the whole population of the country, but God in his mercy, continues the chronicler, ordered it otherwise. For while the queen and her foreign troops remained windbound on the other side of the water, the battle of Evesham was fought and won, by her valiant son, Prince Edward. Leicester had the audacity to proclaim that prince, and all his loyal chivalry traitors, to the captive sovereign, for whose deliverance they had displayed their banners. There are letters in the Fidera, written during Henry's captivity, addressed by him to Queen Eleanor abiding in foreign parts, in which he assures her of his health and comfort, and continued affection for her and their children, and of his good hopes of a happy peace being soon established, through the blessing of God, in his dominions. These letters are, however, evidently written under the restraint and dictation of the Earl of Leicester, since the captive monarch desires, nay, commands, the queen to abstain from any attempts to alter the state of things, and charges her to exhort his heir not to interfere in any way against his will, which will be further explained by Master Edward de Carroll, the deacon of Wells, who is the bearer of these missives. They are dated Windsor, 18th of November, 1264. Eleanor, of course, paid no regard to the forced mandates of her unfortunate consort, but, like a faithful helpmeet in the time of trouble, exerted all the energies of her nature for his deliverance. Possessing the pen of a ready writer, she addressed the most persuasive letters to Urban the Fourth and his legates. Setting forth the zeal and obedience her husband had ever shown to the church, she obtained bulls in favor of her party, which were of great service to the royal cause. The Battle of Evesham was won by Coup de Mon. Leicester mistook Prince Edward's army for that of his own son, Simon de Montfort, which the prince had intercepted and dispersed. When Leicester discovered his error, he was struck with consternation, and exclaimed aloud, May the Lord have mercy on our souls, for our bodies are the princes. Leicester exposed his royal prisoner, and former benefactor, King Henry, to the shafts of his own friends, by placing him in front of the battle. 
Poor Henry was wounded with a javelin in the shoulder, and was in imminent danger of being slain by one of the royalist soldiers, who, mistaking him for one of Leicester's party, would have cut him down had he not cried out in a lamentable voice, Slay me not, I am Henry of Winchester, your king. An officer, hearing this, ran to his assistance, rescued him from his perilous situation, and brought him to Prince Edward, who, greeting him with the tenderest affection, knelt and implored his blessing, and then, leaving a strong guard for his protection, pursued his victorious career. This battle was fought on the 4th of August, 1265, fourteen months after the defeat and capture of the king at Lewes. Though great provocation had been given to the king and every member of the royal family, there is not a single drop of blood shed on the scaffold after this decisive triumph. Henry, with all his faults and follies, was tender of human life, and mindful that the noblest prerogative of the crown is mercy. Neither is it recorded of Queen Eleanor that she ever caused a sanguinary vengeance to be inflicted on any of her foes. King Henry, however, made the Londoners pay dearly for the pelting they had bestowed on the high and mighty lady, his companion. At length, he granted a charter of remission for their sins to his consort in these words. Ye know that in consideration of twenty thousand marks, paid to us by our citizens of London, as an atonement for their great crimes and misdemeanors against us, our royal consort, our royal brother, Richard, king of the Romans, and our dear son, Edward, that we have, and do, by these presents, remit, forgive, acquit, etc., etc., etc. This enormous fine was not paid into the king's exchequer, every farthing of it being devoted to Queen Eleanor's use, and, by her desire, it was transmitted to certain persons in France, who had supplied her with money at her need, during her exile from England. As for Henry, he had a rich harvest of fines and confiscations, granted by his obliging parliament, from the lands of the rebel barons. The disinherited, as they were called, who were thus stripped of their patrimony, having nothing more to lose than their lives, raised a fresh revolt, under the banner of Simon de Montfort, Leicester's ruined heir, who was also King Henry's nephew. The consequences of this rebellion were happily averted by the arrival of the Queen, who landed at Dover, October 29, 1266, bringing with her the Pope's legate, Cardinal Odobone, whom she had induced to visit England, for the purpose of hurling the anathema of the church against the rebel barons. Odobone accordingly convened a synod, and solemnly excommunicated all the adherents of the late Earl of Leicester, whether living or dead, which had a wonderful effect in suppressing the insurrection. The discontented analysts of the era mentioned this event, by saying that the queen returned with the legate, and that together they made a great cursing. Thus did Eleanor see the happy termination of the baron's war, and was once more settled with her royal partner on the throne of England. In the year 1267, the formidable revolt of the Earl of Gloucester occurred. Fortunately for the queen, she was at Windsor when his partisans stormed her palace at Westminster, which they sacked, breaking and destroying everything they could not carry away, even to the doors and windows, and making a great slaughter of the royal domestics, who offered some slight resistance. They also did great mischief to the beautiful new-built abbey. 
four of these banditti being discovered to be servants of the earl of derby were by that nobleman's orders tied up in sacks and thrown into the thames it was at this juncture that prince edward personally encountered the last adherent of leicester and overcame him the queen afterwards proved the benefactress of the gallant outlaw adam de gordon who was not a scot but a poic de vin we translate from the latin of hemingford and wykes this adventure so creditable both to eleanor and her son edward engaged the brave outlaw adam de gordon in altonwood hand to hand and fairly conquered him in a personal encounter after granting him his life he brought him to his wife's palace of guilford where his mother happened to be that evening and introducing him to the queen pleaded so earnestly for him that henry the third pardoned this adherent of leicester and Eleanor soon after gave Gordon an office at Windsor Castle. St. Edward's Chapel being now completed, and forming the crowning glory of that sublime chef d'ordre of Gothic architecture, St. Peter's Abbey at Westminster, which Henry III had been fifty years in building, he, on the 13th of October, St. Edward's Day, 1269, assisted by his brother, the King of the Romans, and his princely sons, Edward and Edmund, bore the bier of the royal saint on his shoulders, and, in the presence of his queen and all the nobles of his court, placed it in its new station, Queen Eleanor offering a silver image of the virgin, and other jewels of great value, at the shrine. King Henry reserved the old coffin of St. Edward for his own private use, having, with his usual simplicity, an idea that its previous occupation by the royal saint had made it a peculiarly desirable tenement. Fortunately for the future peace of England, Boniface, Archbishop of Canterbury, the chief cause of Queen Eleanor's unpopularity, died at Savoy the same year that Prince Edward left England. From the exchequer rolls of this reign, some light is thrown on the domestic usages of royalty in the Middle Ages. The royal table was, it should seem, chiefly supplied by the sheriffs of the counties, or the bailiffs of towns. Thus, we find that the sheriff of the counties of Buckingham and Bedford, by the king's command, on one occasion brought 428 hens to Westminster, for his use. The bailiffs of Bristol provided conjure eels, and the sheriffs of Essex, fowls and other victuals. The bailiffs of New Haven brought lampreys. The sheriff of Gloucester was commanded to cause 20 salmons to be put into his pies, against Christmas. The herring pies of Yarmouth and Norwich still form part of their quit-rent to the crown. The sheriff of Sussex was to furnish brawn and other provisions for the royal use. The sheriff of Wiltshire provided oxen, hogs, sheep, fruit, corn, and many other things for the queen when she was at her dower castle of Marlborough. These requisitions were, however, by no means confined to eatables. In the thirty-seventh year of Henry III's reign, the sheriffs of Wiltshire and Sussex were each ordered to buy a thousand ells of fine linen, and to send it to the royal wardrobe at Westminster, before the next Whitsuntide, and the linen was to be very fair and delicate in quality. In the forty-second year of Henry, the sheriffs of Norfolk and Suffolk were commanded to distribute thirty Byzants, to be offered at St. Edmund's Shrine, for the king and queen, and their children. The sheriff of Nottinghamshire was enjoined to cause the queen's chamber at Nottingham Castle to be painted with the history of Alexander the Great. 
and the sheriff of Southampton to cause the image of St. Christopher, with our Savior in his arms, and the image of St. Edward the King, to be painted in her chapel at Winchester. In one of the tower rolls, dated Woodstock, April 30th, in the 32nd year of Henry III's reign, that monarch directs his treasurer and chamberlain to pay Master Henry the poet, whom he affectionately styles, our beloved Master Henry, the versificator, one hundred shillings, due to him for the arrears of his salary, and joining them to pay it without delay, though the exchequer was then shut. In the great roll of the forty-ninth of Henry the Third, there is a curious account of Queen Eleanor's wardrobe expenses, as rendered by Hugh of the pen. From the feast of St. Philip and St. James, in the forty-first year of the king her husband, till the feast of St. Simon and St. Jude, forty-ninth year, under the control of Alexander de Bredaham, chaplain to the queen. The accounts are of a more credible nature to Eleanor than might be imagined, when we consider the reckless expenditure of the first years of her marriage. There was expended in the linen department, the butlery, kitchen, scullery, salceri, hall, in feeding the poor, in liveries of garçons, ferrery and shoeing of horses, six thousand eight hundred and sixteen pounds in obligations for holidays, and alms distributed daily, and by the wayside, one hundred and fifty-one pounds and eighteen shillings. In silks, mantles, upper garments, linen hose for her ladies, and other miscellaneous expenses for the wardrobe, a hundred and fourscore pounds, eleven shillings and twelve pence halfpenny. In horse purchases, and robes for the queen's family, in mending robes, in shoes, saddles, reins, almonds, wax, and other accessories for the wardrobe, one thousand six hundred and ninety-one pounds, twelve shillings and one penny. In gifts presented to the knights, clerks, and other messengers coming to the queen, three hundred and sixty-eight pounds, eleven shillings and ten pence. In secret gifts and private alms, four thousand and seventeen pounds, ten shillings and three pence. In jellies, spices, apples, pears, and other fruit, two hundred and fifty-two pounds, sixteen shillings, and nine pence halfpenny. In jewels brought for the queen's use, to wit, eleven rich garlands, with emeralds, pearls, sapphires, and garnets, of the value of one hundred and forty-five pounds, four shillings and four pence. The sum total of these expenses is twenty-one thousand nine hundred and sixty pounds, three shillings, seven and a half halfpenny, and the accomptant acknowledges that he was in surplusage of ten thousand four hundred and forty-six pounds, three shillings and three halfpence. Thus we see how large a portion of her income Eleanor of Provence devoted to charitable purposes. But the character of this queen undoubtedly improved as she advanced into the vale of years. When men were indebted to the queen for Aurum Regine, sometimes she respited, pardoned, and discharged the debt, as she saw fit. Eleanor of Provence, oppressive and exacting as she was, occasionally exercised this gracious prerogative, as we learn from memoranda contained in the rolls of the exchequer, where it is recorded that the queen gave respite to Imoin de Sully for thirty marks, which he owed her for Aurum Regine. And in the same roll, dated Southampton, it is certified, that the queen pardoned Patrick de Chances, a hundred shillings, owed for queen's gold, due on the fine which he paid to the king, to have Sason of the lands that were his patrimony. 
In the fifth roll there is also record of Thomas, son of Ocher, having respite of the fine of fifteen marks, due for a trespass in the forest, and of the portion coming to Eleanor. The nuptials of Queen Eleanor's second son, Edmund, Earl of Lancaster and Derby, with the beautiful Eveline, heiress of William Fortibus, Earl of Albemarle, had been celebrated on the 8th of April, 1270, before his departure for the Holy Land. The youthful bride died before his return, in the first year of her nuptials. Her death was quickly followed by that of the King of the Romans, for grief of which King Henry fell into the deepest dejection of mind, and, having been in person to quell a riot in Norwich, in which great part of the cathedral was burnt, he was attacked with a mortal illness at Bury St. Edmund's. But his anxiety to settle the affairs of the kingdom caused him to insist on being carried on to London by short stages. When the dying monarch arrived in the metropolis, finding his disillusion at hand, he summoned Gilbert de Clare, Earl of Gloucester, into his presence, and made him swear to preserve the peace of England during the absence of Prince Edward. He expired on the 16th of November, 1272, aged 66, having reigned 56 years and 20 days. His decease happened in the night. John Kirkaby delivered the royal seal the next morning to Peter of Winchester, keeper of the wardrobe, the Archbishop of York, and the rest of the council. By the only will King Henry ever made, Queen Eleanor having been appointed regent of England, she caused the council to assemble at the new temple, on the 20th of November, the feast of St. Edmund the Martyr and King, where, by her consent and appointment, and the advice of Robert Kilwarbly, Archbishop of Canterbury, the Earl of Gloucester, and the chief peers and prelates of the realm, her eldest son, Prince Edward, was proclaimed King of England by the style and title Edward I. The remains of King Henry, royally robed and crowned, were, according to his own desire, placed in the old coffin in which the body of Edward the Confessor had originally been interred, and buried near the shrine of that monarch in Westminster Abbey. The Knights Templars, with the consent of Queen Eleanor, his widow, undertook the care and expense of his funeral, which was very magnificent. They raised a sumptuous monument to his memory, which was afterwards richly inlaid with jasper and precious stones, brought from the Holy Land by his son, Edward I, for that purpose. We copy the translation of his Latin epitaph from Stowe. The friend of pity and alms deed, Henry III Willem of England King, who this church break and after at his mead, again renewed into this fair building, now resteth here, which did so great a thing. After the funeral of King Henry, the barons went in solemn procession to the high altar of Westminster Abbey, and swore fealty to their absent sovereign. In 1273, the widowed queen, on account of some misgovernment, dissolved the old foundation of the hospital of St. Catherine by the tower, and refounded it in honor of the same saint, for a master, a chaplain, three brethren, three sisters, ten Beatus women, and six poor scholars. The Pope addressed a pastoral letter of condolence to Eleanor, on the death of the king her husband. It is written jointly to her and King Edward, whom he felicitates on his ascension, and requests Eleanor to give him the letter on his return. Soon after his return, Edward I was forced to rectify a wrong committed by his mother, which was much in the style of her former acts of rapacity. 
Just before the death of her husband, she had persuaded him to grant her the custody of London Bridge for six years. Before that term was expired, the citizens found their new-built bridge suffering great injury, for, they declared, in their supplication, the said Lady Queen taketh all the tolls, and careth not how the bridge is kept. Edward I soon put an end to his mother's unconscientious proceedings. Eleanor of Provence lost her husband and daughter in one year, for scarcely had the tomb closed over the mortal remains of her royal lord, ere she was called upon to mourn the death of her eldest daughter, Margaret, Queen of Scotland. This lady had come to pay her mother a dutiful visit of condolence, on the death of the king, her father, and died in England, in the thirty-third year of her age, and the twenty-second of her marriage, leaving only one daughter, who was married to Eric, king of Norway, and was the mother of the maid of Norway, heiress of Scotland. But the rejoicings and festivities of the coronation of Edward I, received a melancholy interruption, in consequence of the death of the Duchess of Bretagne, who came with her lord, to witness the inauguration of her royal brother, and died very unexpectedly a few days afterwards, in the thirtieth year of her age, greatly lamented by her illustrious consort, and by her mother, Queen Eleanor. Matthew of Westminster said she was a princess of great beauty and wit. Queen Eleanor and Edward I preserved a great regard for the Duke of Bretagne, after the decease of Lady Beatrice. There is a letter in the second volume of the Federa from Eleanor, during her widowhood, to the king her son, in which she appears to take a lively interest in the welfare of her son-in-law. It is thus headed. Letter of Eleonora, the mother of the king, for John, Duke of Bretagne, while traveling in a far country. Eleanor, by the grace of God, Queen of England, to the king our son, health with our benison. Inasmuch as our son, John of Bretagne, is in a foreign land, and requires of me as his mother, and you as his lord, some recommendation, our Sir John de Maure, his seneschal in England, ought to go to Ladur quickly, to hear certain tidings of his lord. We pray and require that you would grant this, as my Sir Nicol de Stapleton can attend to his wants in this country, and we wish that you would send your letter by him, as he will understand it, for he will not go without your especial command, and we pray you that you will do it quickly, and if you will please, to give the power of your letter, that he may have a torn, where he pleases, the same as you granted to the sire de Drew, his brother. And excuse Sir John de Maury, that he cannot make his congé to you before he departs, for he cannot do it on account of haste we recommend you to God. Given at Lutgers Hall, 8th day of October. It is probable that Eleanor was suffering from some kind of sickness in the year 1275, for we find in the Federa a protection granted by Edward I to Master William, the Provencal, physico to the Queen Mother, whom the said Queen had procured to come to her from beyond seas. It is especially provided in this protection, that the Provencal physician is to be left in quiet at all times and places, save that he is to be answerable to any debts that he may contract in this country. It has been generally asserted that Eleanor of Provence retired to the nunnery of Ambresbury soon after the coronation of her son Edward I, but this does not appear to have been the case, for several of her precepts and letters are dated from Waltham, Guildford, Lutgers Hall, and other places. 
She retired to Ambresbury as a residence in 1280, but she did not take the veil till four years afterwards. There is an original letter from Queen Eleanor to her son, King Edward, dated from Waltham. Eleonora, by the grace of God, Queen of England, to our dear son the king, health and our blessing. We have sent your prayer to the king of France, that he may lend his aid in purchasing our share of the land of Provence. We have done the letter for you, which you sent to us, and we pray you to hear it read, and if it please you, have it sealed, and if not, that you would be pleased to command it to be amended, and sent forthwith to your aunt, my lady of France. We also entreat you that you would send to Mr. Bonnet, your clerk, that he would show and advance this request in the court of France as much as he can. We commend you to God, given at Waltham, 8th day of July, 1282. The four younger sons of Queen Eleanor, Richard, John, William, and Henry, all died before the king their father, so that, of her nine children, two sons were only surviving at the time she retired to Ambresbury. In the year 1280, her son, King Edward, visited her there, when he was on his march to Wales. Queen Eleanor then showed him a man who said he had received his sight through the miraculous intercession of the late King Henry III, in consequence of having offered up his prayers at his tomb. Edward, whose sound judgment taught him to regard the legend with the contempt its falsehood merited, entreated his mother not to bestow her patronage on a base impostor, whom a prince of his father's piety and justice would certainly rather have punished with loss of speech for his hypocrisy than restored to sight, had he indeed possessed the power of doing either. Two years after this date, King Edward again visited his widowed mother in her monastic retreat. Her profession as a nun did not take place till the year 1284, when she was solemnly veiled in the church of Ambresbury, and, according to the words of her contemporary wikes, she laid down the diadem from her head, and the precious purple from her shoulders, and with them all worldly ambition. She persuaded her young granddaughter, the Princess Mary, the fifth daughter of Edward I, and his queen Eleanor of Castile, to take the vows at the same time, together with Eleanor, daughter to the deceased Duchess of Bretagne. Queen Eleanor, though bent on a conventual life, had delayed her profession till she could obtain the Pope's license to keep her rich dowry as Queen Dowager of England. She received the tenderest attention and respect from her son, King Edward, who regarded her with great affection, and once, when he was going to France to meet the king, his cousin, on a matter of the greatest importance, and had advanced as far as Canterbury on his journey, receiving intelligence of the sudden and alarming illness of his mother, he instantly gave up his French voyage, and hastened to her. Matthew of Westminster mentions the profession of Queen Eleanor, as taking place in the year 1287, in the following terms. That generous Virago, Eleonora, Queen of England, and mother of the king, took the veil and religious habit at Ambresbury, on the day of the translation of St. Thomas, the Archbishop of Canterbury, having obtained leave of the Pope to keep possession of her dower in perpetuity, according to her wish. After Queen Eleanor's profession, her uncle, Philip, Earl of Savoy, applied to her and her son, King Edward, requesting them to choose from among his nephews a successor to his dominions, as he was himself childless, 
and distracted by the intrigues and quarrels of the rival claimants. There is a long letter in the Federa on this subject, addressed jointly to Eleanor, the Queen Mother, and King Edward, her son, by the dying Earl, in which he entreats them to decide for him, and declares that his bishops and nobles are willing to recognize whomsoever they may think proper to appoint for his heir. Queen Eleanor was, in the following year, named as executor to Philip of Savoy's last will and testament, jointly with her son, King Edward. The testator, with many compliments to the wisdom, prudence, affection, and more than that, the good faith and probity of the queen and her son, commits the disposal of all his personal property to be divided between all his nephews and nieces. It appears that Amadeus, the son of the deceased Thomas of Savoy, Earl of Flanders, was the sovereign chosen by Queen Eleanor and her son, King Edward, to succeed to the dominions of her dying uncle. When Eleanor's life was fast ebbing away, and she lay moaning with pain on her sickbed, it is recorded that she gave excellent counsel to her son, regarding a very perplexing affair, which had just happened at his court. Edward had given refuge to a state prisoner, who had escaped from the Châtelet in Paris. This Frenchman was a literary character, and named Thomas de Turbeville. It turned out that Turbeville was in reality a spy, a clerk of the king's council having intercepted a letter, in which the ungrateful man described the best place for seizing King Edward, and taking him prisoner to France. Turbeville, being fully convicted of treason, was condemned to be executed. But, says Piers, from whom we draw the story, he had dread to die, and sent the king word that he was willing to confess who had instigated the crime, as several great men at court were implicated in the attempt. Thomas was therefore respited, till the king's pleasure was known. The dutiful monarch was watching by the bedside of his aged mother, when the message was delivered, that a confession regarding accomplices, usually exhorted by torture, was voluntarily offered by Thomas surnamed Troubletown, the literal interpretation of the name of Turbeville. From the dying queen mother, seeing, perhaps, the things of this world by the light of that which was approaching, offered advice full of wisdom on the subject. At Ambersbury the king, with his mother was, when to him came tiding of Troubletown Thomas, they told him a deal Thomas would say to him, to warn him full well, which were his traitors grim. His mother Eleanor abated her great bail. Son, she said, never more trow the traitor's tale. Traitors such as he, for hate will make a lie, and through each word will be vengeance and felony. Son, on my blessing, trow not his saw, but let him have ending as traitor by law. Edward took this wise advice, and Turbeville died without his confession being required, a proceeding which saved the king from many tormenting suspicions regarding the fidelity of his servants. Eleanor of Provence survived the king, her husband, nineteen years. She died at the nunnery of Ambersbury, June 24th, during the absence of her son in Scotland. Thomas Wykes thus records the particulars of her death and burial in his Latin chronicle. The fleeting state of worldly glory is shown by the fact that the same year carried off two English queens, wife and mother of the king, both inexpressibly dear to him. The nuns of Ambersbury not being able to sepulchre the queen mother with sufficient magnificence, had her body embalmed, 
so that no corruption ensued, and in a retired place, reverentially deposited it, till Edward returned from his Scottish campaign. On the king's return, he summoned all his clergy and baron to Ambersbury, where he solemnly completed the entombing of his mother, on the day of the nativity of the Blessed Mary, in her conventual church, where her obsequies were reverently celebrated. But the heart of his mother, King Edward carried with him to London. Indeed, he brought there the hearts of both the queens, and on the next Sunday, the day of St. Nicholas, before a vast multitude, they were honorably interred, the conjugal heart in the church of the friars' preachers, and the maternal heart in that of the friars' minor, in the same city. Among the parliamentary rolls, we meet with a remarkably pitiful petition from the converted Jews, patronized by Dame Eleanor, companion of King Henry the Third, setting forth that their converts had been promised two hundred and two pounds and four pence from the exchequer for their sustenance, which had not been received by them, and that the poor converts prayed their lord, King Edward I, to grant the same, seeing that the said poor converts prayed indefatigably for the souls of the late King Henry and the Queen Eleanor, his companion, on whom God have mercy. Therefore they hope the said sum may be paid by the treasurer, for the sustenance of the converts. For God's sake, sire, take pity, is the concluding sentence of this moving supplication. Queen Eleanor survived to see the conquest of Wales, and the contract of marriage between her grandson, Edward of Carnarvon, the heir of England, and her great-granddaughter Margaret, the heiress of Scotland and Norway, through which a peaceful union of those realms with England, Ireland, Wales, Aquitaine, and Ponthieu was contemplated, an arrangement which promised to render her descendants the most powerful sovereigns in Europe. End of section 8